and welcome to episode 401 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news, and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. You can also connect with us on social media. Uh, we're on Instagram for Thinking LSAT and LSAT Demon. You might also find us on TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn. We will feature questions sent to us via social media on upcoming episodes. So lots of ways to get in touch with us if that's something you want to do. We're going to start today with an email about favorite LSAT questions coming to us from Jesus. Ben, you want to read it? Sure. Hello, Ben and Nathan. What are your favorite sections of the LSAT? Reading comp, logic games, or logical reasoning? And what specifically do you like about them? Hearing people's interests, likes, always motivates me. Thanks. I would say my favorite section is logical reasoning. I don't know if that's because they're shorter, but I do like figuring them out. Games to me is fun, but they're also maybe more formulaic. I, I don't know what it is. So my order is logical reasoning, games, and then reading comp. Okay. Yeah, I games and LR is my top two. I love logical reasoning because I get to attack the arguments. And mm -hmm. I think when you're when you learn how to do it properly, LR is really fun. The games are fun, too. Once you get good at the games, I wasn't good at the games when I started. Most people aren't good at the games when they first start. But once I got good at the games, um, then I, I do have fun. You know, they're like little dumb logic puzzles, right? When I'm bored, I still will do the wordle every once in a while or you know, it's just puzzles like and Ben, you say they're formulaic, which is true to the extent that, you know, all the information is there. You know, you can answer every one of the questions perfectly. You just kind of have to wrestle with it and sort it out. But yeah, if if you were stuck on an airplane with nothing else to do, a book of logic games would actually be kind of a nice companion, right? Mm -hmm. Something to occupy your mind for a while while you're just sitting there. Sure. Yeah, those two are probably my favorite reading comp. I have I've gotten to enjoy reading comp more and more as I have gotten better at faking interest in the passage so that I can hopefully then get interested in the passage. And if I do, then I end up learning interesting things from the the reading comp passages. Sure. So that can be fun, too. Um, truth is, all of it's pretty fun once you get good at it because it's fun to get them right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, uh, I do think that reading comp is probably the most similar to what people are going to do in law school. And, you know, I didn't love law school and I was not meant to be an attorney. So maybe that's why it's my least favorite section, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you say it's the most like what you're going to do in law school, what do you mean by that? Well, you do a lot of reading of dense, yeah, boring, somewhat arcane, stuff right yeah and and you need to figure out what the main point is i i remember in law school reading long case opinions and even then they're cut down right because the book is only giving you segments of the opinion right and you can easily get sidetracked going down some rabbit hole but the judge is giving you that that random side note to prove some point, which may be the main point or maybe some sub point to the main point, 
But you need to be aware of that. It's so easy to get lost and then be like, wait, what was I supposed to get away, take away from that? Um, and that's a skill you got to develop. Yeah, you're going to have to be reading dense, boring shit for the rest of your career. I mean, you're not going to choose the documents that are going to arrive in on your desk, but you're going to have to understand every document that crosses your desk. Yep. So I agree that reading comp is very similar to what you're going to do in real life. So you better buckle up and get used to it, right? Fake mm -hmm. it till you make it, I think, is our best tip for reading comp. Uh, if you can find a way to get engaged early in the passage, just even, you know, on reading comp, I think it's the search for the main point. Like, why are you wasting my time with this? What the hell is this document? Yeah. What are you going to and you start to try to see further down the road, right? You try to you try to anticipate what's coming up around that next bend, start to make little predictions as you read. And there's a way that you can catch actual interest in the passage and if you do then you you turn it into a pleasurable experience instead of boy because <laughs> if you're not understanding it right if it's if you're not if nothing's actually going in then it really is going to be miserable to do reading it's going to be miserable yeah and it's going to be miserable when you're trying to people may not consciously be doing this but the, on some level they're doing it they're trying to memorize that and it's just i i can't do it that way I I don't think other people can either. They're trying to, and that's just a burden. Yeah, no, the goal is to understand the, the gist of it, right? Why yeah. does this document exist? What do they want? What's their main point? Are they saying yeah. that something is good? Are they saying that something is bad? Yeah. Are they saying that there's two competing theories and neither of them are correct, but maybe there's a third theory? I mean, you, you got to get in there and figure out just what the hell is the big picture of this thing, but it certainly is not reading, you know, it's not memorization at all. Yeah. I just think people <laughs> slip into that trap, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm going to be asked questions about this. Oh, this must be important. I better take note of that. No. Yeah. Try to understand what the person is saying there and remember that idea, which is literally 10 times easier. Oh, it's so much easier and it's so much more enjoyable, too. If you can find yourself in a little debate with that author. Mm hmm instead of uh yeah like trying to take notes or underline the important things or none of that i don't think is helpful why did they write this document who's paying them you know or what are they selling here mm -hmm. what's the agenda what are they trying to convince me of if you can figure out what evidence they have and what conclusions they're trying to get you to draw from that evidence you can have more fun with reading comp because you start doing it more like logical reasoning. Yeah. All right. Hopefully that was helpful. Jesus. Next email is from Eric about understanding purposefully awkward question stems. Greetings. I ran into a few questions where the answer was hidden by purposefully difficult to read slash understand answers. <laughs> okay. What are we talking about here? Yeah, what is it? Is it a purposefully awkward question stem or is it a purposefully difficult to read or understand answer choice? We have an example here. I'm not going to read the whole question, but I, I do want to take a look at the question. Question here is very straightforward. The economist responds to the critic by what? And looking at the argument, it's a critic saying something to an economist and then the economist responding. The question saying the economist responds to the critic by is what we would call a reasoning question on a reasoning question. They're just asking you to describe the reasoning that was uh, 
reasoned by the economist. Like, what did the economist do? That's all they're asking you there. It's a passage driven type of question where we're going to pick an answer that we can prove based on what the economist said. I, I don't I don't I don't see at all what's what's difficult to understand about that question. Maybe the answer choices were difficult to understand because on a on a method question or a um, reasoning question, a question that just that asks you to describe the reasoning of the argument, they do give you vaguely worded answers. Yes. Abstractions, right? Right. It's it's a it's not going to have very much of the detail in it. Instead, it's going to be an abstraction, just like one of the answers here says offering a particular counterexample to a general claim asserted by the critic. So <laughs> if you're going to pick that answer, well, we have to be able to vouch for every single word in that answer, right? We have to be able to say like, well, OK, so the critic did make a general claim. Here's what that general claim is. And, it, you know, what's a general claim? Well, something broad, something that would apply all the time. At least it a would apply generally rather than a, yeah. just being about one yeah. specific day Instance. or something. It would yeah. be like we're, you know, we are usually open from nine to five during the work week or something like yeah. that. That's a general claim. Yeah. So, OK, did they make a general claim? And then if we were going to pick D, which again says offering a particular counterexample to a general claim asserted by the critic. OK, so the critic was making a general claim and the was the economist offering a particular counterexample. So a particular counterexample to a general claim would be something along the lines of, you know, you said that you were generally open nine to five on Monday through Friday, but. Yesterday, I was there on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. and you were closed. That yep. would be a particular counterexample to a general claim asserted by the critic. Yep. And the great thing about what you're doing is you're taking those abstract. Um, is abstract the right word? It's these these sort of these descriptions, right, from the answer choice. And you're tying them back to something that concretely happened in the passage. And if you can't do that at any point, you're immediately done with that answer choice, right? Like you right. started with the general claim asserted by the critic. Well, first of all, if you can't find a general claim, you're done. There was no general claim being made. We're done. We're moving on to the next answer. If you do find a general claim, but it was a general by claim is not the best example because I think I feel like the edges are kind of amorphous on what is an, a general claim. You know, something like if an answer choice had mentioned cause and effect or counterexample, this 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 answer said counterexample, right? Offer it started with offering a particular counterexample. So say what you were saying, Ben, but use counterexample instead. Well, okay. We can shift gears totally. I don't have a problem with general example though, because in some cases it's obviously wrong, right? Like if they talk about Joe. And what yeah. he did on Friday, it's like, I don't see any claim, claim right? So yeah. I agree. I totally agree with you. In fact, when you were talking earlier and we were trying to define what a general claim is, it's very difficult because it's all relative to something else, right? You could make a general claim only about Monday mornings. 
Well, you can and, make a general claim about Joe on Monday mornings, right? Joe yeah. generally makes a pot of coffee before he goes for his walk or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That is a general claim about what Joe specifically does on specifically Monday mornings. Yeah. But it's still a general claim because it's not like yesterday Joe did this thing. It's yeah. Joe usually does this thing. So that's a general claim. Okay. Becomes a general claim. But there are definitely, I feel like I remember specific instances where I said to myself, wait, this passage told me what Joe did yesterday morning. <laughs> That's not a general claim, so I'm done. But you're right. The counterexample is also an easy thing to look at, or maybe not also, but an easier thing possibly to look at because you just say, was there an example provided? And was that going against anything in the passage? If no, then you're immediately moving on from that answer and crossing it out. But to go back to this general claim idea, or I don't even know, was it general claim? What did they say? D was particular counterexample to a general claim. Oh, general, literally general claim. Okay, so this says general claim asserted by the critic. If we went back and found a general claim, but it wasn't asserted by the critic, it was asserted by the economist, again, done. That's out, yeah. Right? So yeah. these are challenging because they're abstractions, but at the same time, if you do it right, if you just say, okay, I'm going to start at the beginning of this answer choice and tie each abstraction back to something in the passage, as soon as you can't, it's over. You don't need to understand the logic. You don't need to understand anything else. It has to match up. So in that way, I think these a lot of people glaze over these answers and they, they find them challenging. But I think once you understand how to do them, they're actually super easy. Yeah, so that, because they're very much the like test. must be trues. They're, they're yeah, just yeah. all you're doing is as you read as you read answer A, you should be looking for reasons why it's wrong. Right. Yeah. A is wrong 80 percent of the time. So is B. Yeah. So is C. So is D. So is E. So we're going to be really critical as we read each answer, looking for essentially, you know, what's the rotten apple in this barrel? Barrel mm. A. Barrel mm -hmm. A has a rotten apple in it or multiple rotten apples in <laughs> yeah. it 80 percent of the time. Yep. So we should be expecting it to stink. And once we find it, you know, then you reach your hand in it and it's mushy. OK, just throw it away. It's gone. We're moving on to the next answer. And you should be able to eliminate four out of five. I mean, you can conclusively eliminate four out of five on this question type because four yeah. out of five are not what they did. That's just not what it said in the statement. Yeah. The correct answer is going to perfectly describe it. I mean, you're sorry. It's going to unobjectionably descri describe it. You can't find yeah. anything wrong with it. There is yep. no reason to dismiss the correct answer. Yep. Eric continues with a couple of questions. One what sort of reading practice might enable me to better understand the question stem? I, I don't think any kind of reading practice is going to help you with that, Eric. I think you just need to do lots more LSAT stuff. Just keep doing LSAT questions. There's only what we, we have like a dozen different question types, right? Yeah. So the more you practice LSAT logical reasoning, the better you're going to get at understanding question types on LSAT logical reasoning. And I would never advise you to go read anything else in order to get better at that specifically. Number two, um, before we go to number two, I, I do yes. think now, so we, when we started reading Eric's uh, submission, we were confused, or at least I was confused as to whether Eric was, was confused by the awkward question stems or the awkward answer choices. I think Eric is confused by both. And I do think a lot of people ask about this type of question yeah. stem. The economist responds to the critic by, all it's saying is how, 
did the economist respond? What, yeah, what did they in, do? In, what did it, what did they do? <laughs> that's the question. And so maybe that's what Eric is asking about, even though it's a very short and straightforward question stem. That's that's what's happening it's, here. I mean, it's it's literally half the questions on the LSAT boil down to what did they do right there? Mm -hmm. Right. What's the I flaw? Mean, yep. Well, mm -hmm. all of reading comp is must be true questions. Mm -hmm. Logical reasoning has flaw, must be true, supported reasoning, necessary assumption. I mean, it's like half the questions, maybe not quite half, but something like half the questions on LR are just must be trues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on games, even half the questions are must be true, must be false. Mm -hmm. So I would say solidly half the test is simply just it's just what did they do there? Which one of these do you have evidentiary support for? Yeah. And I think people aren't used to that. They're not they're not used to like it's it's easier than you think it is. There's evidence on the page. You have to pick the one answer that is supported by the evidence on. Well, in a lot of cases, proven by the evidence, right? Proven by the evidence. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what that's the standard that I'm looking for is yeah. the one that I can prove. And that is literally half of the LSAT or more than half the LSAT because it's all of reading comp, virtually all of reading comp, half of LR and half of games is just a bunch of must be true questions. Well, I would I would say games is like reading comp. I would say it's virtually all must be true. Well, but there's a lot of could be true, uh, could be false. Well, which... I guess I put that into the same category because essentially what you're saying is we've been given some facts and now you have to determine what must be true yeah. or what follows from that. And then if they say, well, what could be true, that's you, you can answer that because you know what must be true and what can't be true, which is right. also in my mind, well, the same thing. And then you're just determining right. whether that could happen or not. I don't know. When to me, they it ask you which different. one of the following could be true, they are also telling you that four of the answer choices must be false. Or when they say which one could be mm -hmm, false, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're telling you that four answers must be must true. Must be true. Yeah. So, so these are all like to me on the same side of the, they're different, different sides. Yeah, maybe of the same all coin. of games then. So it's like all of games and 95% of reading comp and half of logical reasoning is just yeah. asking you for which one is supported by the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Eric's yeah. second question. I, I don't really understand it. It says, how do I know when quote, the juice is worth the squeeze? I can pick one of the two, which we can quickly narrow it down to. And then just move on with the test. Do you have any idea what Eric is trying to yeah, ask? I there? think Eric is trying to ask, when do I get it down to two answer choices, pick one and move on, essentially mm. guess. And when do I push further <laughs> to then determine which of those final two answer choices is actually correct? So uh, Eric thinks there is some sort of answer here that you can <laughs> that you can figure out that balance. In some cases, you're just going to guess between two. And in some cases, you're really going to figure out the correct answer. And we're going to tell Eric, well, at least I think we are. I would tell Eric to always try to find the best answer. Yeah, you have to solve these questions. There's one correct answer. There are four wrong answers. If you're narrowing it down to two all the time, then you're not being critical enough of the answers in the first place. You need to be looking for reasons why they're wrong. You're also doing what everyone else does. I mean, I think right. people are very 
excited about the fact that they narrowed it down to two, but all you're doing is joining the party that thousands of other people have already joined. Well, it actually sucks. It's actually bad. I mean, it's not that going from five to two, like five answers when you, you know, if you've never looked at the question before, there are five answers with equal chance of being correct. If you can correctly narrow it down to two, I suppose that's a step in the right direction. But people don't understand how small of a step in the right direction it really is. Because if you randomly guess on a question, you're going to get it right one out of five times. If you narrow it down to two and then randomly guess, you're going to get it right one out of two times. Mm -hmm. So you've gone from an expectation of two tenths of a point all the way up to an expectation of five tenths of a point. So you've gained yourself 0.3 tenths of a point via your narrowing it down. I mean, you've doubled your probability, more than doubled your probability. So in <laughs> but that it still sense, sucks. Yeah. Because I just don't you're think... comparing, it's random yeah. guessing to, yeah. oh, okay, now it's a 50-50 guess. But the thing is, if you can get it from a 50-50 guess to actually solving it, you go from one out of two chance to one out of one chance. You go from half a point of expected value all the way up to a full point of expected yeah. value. Yeah. So what people don't get is that it's more valuable to get one from a 50-50 up to a I know the answer. That's way more valuable than it is to go from five answers to a 50-50. So Mm -hmm. like if you're thinking about, hey, what's a better use of my time? You know, I have a couple minutes left. Should I try to do one more question or should I try to figure out this one that's already a 50-50? I think many people make the stupid error of judgment where they go, oh, well, you know, 50 50, I'll just yeah, it's got to be one of those two. So I'll pick randomly there and then I'll move on and I'll do this brand new question. And you like maybe you narrow that one down to a 50 50. Yeah, that's way, way worse than just solving the one that you were already on your way to solving because you had narrowed it down to a 50 50. Yeah, it's not like the first step is bad. It's that it's that you got to go ahead and do that second step because it's way more valuable than the first step. Almost twice as valuable. You're talking about the benefits that accrue right in that moment. And you're right, right? You're going to go up 0.3 with getting it down to two and you're going to go up 0.5 by going that last step. So you, I agree with you in that instant, it's a good decision, but also in the long term, it's a good decision because that struggle to get from 0.5 to one, well, that's going to help you with this question, but it's also going to help you with so many questions down the road. You're going to be actually doing the law school admission test. I yeah. mean, that's if you're where constantly the real narrowing it down to a place. 50-50, you're not going to, like, you're not scoring in the 160s or higher by constantly narrowing it down to 50-50s. You, you can only score in the 160s by really solving questions. Yep. And you shouldn't go to law school, we believe, that you shouldn't go to law school with anything less than a 160. And even that makes us cringe. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I want to see 165 or higher yeah. because I feel like that's the people that are going to really succeed in law school, really succeed in legal practice. You don't want to go do poorly in law school. I mean, it's no. just such a disaster to do that. And I think the like wrapping your mind around the law school admission test is a very good predictor of whether you're going to be able to wrap your mind around law school. Yeah. So get in the habit of solving these questions and knowing that you're right. Eric, my advice to you would be focus on getting 10 out of 10 
in a row at the beginning of every section. I mean, you, you've got to start solving these questions down to just one answer. Yep. And if you can get the first 10, then turn your attention to getting the first 15. And if you can do that, then turn your attention to getting the first 20. And if you can get the first 20, you're already going to be scoring in the 160s. And you'll clearly understand that this test makes sense. And that's the only way that you're, you know, ever going to even dream of getting to the 170s is by solving these questions and knowing that you're getting the right answer. So this yeah. this idea that you're going to be, you know, frequently like weighing and balancing and like, oh, no, it's just not worth it for me to take the time to solve that question. Good luck, because if you guess on this one, by the way, you're also going to be moving deeper into the section. And as you move deeper into the section, the questions get harder anyway. Yeah. So why not just stay present and solve the question that you're actually working on instead of thinking about, oh, I better hurry up and just randomly guess here to get to the harder ones that I might not be able to solve anyway. Yeah. You know, I give way too many um, gym analogies on this podcast, but I do want to illustrate that if I fail at 10 reps, right, if that's if the 10th rep is where I can't push the weights any further, that's also where I'm growing the most. Right. Whereas if I go into the gym and I do five reps, I do half of that. That's like someone who brings these down to two answer choices. Oh, great. You brought it down to two and then you quit. If I did five reps, sure, maybe I'm staying healthy on some level, but I'm not going to make progress. I'm not going to push through and then get to a higher weight because I'm quitting way before the challenge really kicks in. The challenge kicks in when you're debating between those last two and figuring out how one answer is dead wrong and the other answer is 100% correct while everyone else is like, yeah, they both sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, if you want six or seven points of improvement, there's gimmicky strategies, you know, that you that involve half-assed guessing like this. But you're also going to be limiting yourself to like, okay, that's the most improvement you're ever going to make is six or seven points by time management and you know this mm -hmm. nonsense and and it might actually hurt you i mean you might not even be able to get your six or seven points by doing it that way but we regularly get people 15 point improvement 20 point improvement 25 point improvements and the way we get those kinds of gains is by slowing down and focusing on actually solving these questions we have to get you to the point where you're going to realize that the lsat is easy these questions are solvable and if mm -hmm. you don't start just solving the questions, the longer you have this idea that I, oh, well, but if I could just quickly narrow it down and move on, then, you know, that would be better. No, that's not better for you. That's not better for you today. And it's also not better for your development. All right. We got a question here. This came in from the ask button. Okay. Sent in by Delia. Yeah, Delia. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was taught from another LSAT prep course to use the quote, negation test when reading through answer choices for necessary assumption questions for logical reasoning. The negation test is when you negate the answer choice, and if that negation subsequently disproves the author's argument, it is the correct answer. Do you approve of this strategy? <laughs> yes and no. I wrote a blog post a while back called Negating the Assumption Negation Test mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's the best way to go about doing necessary assumption questions. The best way to go about necessary assumption questions is to just ask yourself, which one does the author have to agree with? 
the correct answer is going to be something that must be true according to the author. Yep. But if you what that means is if if it must be true, according to the author, then, yeah, the author's going to hate it if this is false. Yep. So I think it's OK to have both ways of thinking about it because it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. But I've seen too many students get caught up in the negation, like they try to negate all five answers instead of just thinking about it. Like, is this something that the author would agree with? Yeah. You, you can think about it. Are you going to go through the front door? Or are you going to go through the back door? Right. Both of them will get you into the house. But why not just go through the front door? And if you get down to an answer choice and another one and somehow looking at it a different way helps you see the answer. Great. But it shouldn't be your, hey, every time I go to my house, I run around to the back and then go in that way. What? Hmm? Like, let's solve this problem directly. Yeah. It's, not, it's just not something that we teach because these questions are usually easier than that. The, the right answer is going to be the one where the author of the argument looks at it and goes, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, that's yeah, I, I you're right. That must be true, according to me. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Or in other words, if I don't agree with that, nothing makes any sense. Right. And that's the negation test right there. But it's better to think about it directly first, as opposed to I think what happens in these courses is that it becomes it come, becomes one the way. And people think they have to do it. Then they get all tied up in knots, negating things that they sometimes negate incorrectly. And you might be doing all this work that you don't need to do. It's yeah. The negation test is especially difficult if there's already a negative one or more negatives in the answer mm -hmm. choice. Then it gets mm -hmm. tough because you're turning a negative into a double negative or a double negative into a triple negative. And so then that's really confusing. Other times people don't know where to put the not into the statement, right? People don't even know how to negate. Yeah. The thing, if you are going to dabble with this negation idea, you need to remember that you're negating the entire answer choice. So yeah. people would be like, where does the not go? And they're looking at this long statement, you know, and maybe yeah. it's something like <sighs> Joe goes to the coffee shop every Wednesday morning. Yep. Right. How do I negate that? Is it Joe goes to the coffee shop not every Wednesday morning? Joe goes to the coffee shop Wednesday, but not in the morning? Or <laughs> I don't know. never Just, goes to the coffee shop Wednesday? I mean, I hear people negating that way too, right? right. They, they go to the opposite extreme, which is not a negation. Right. The, the trick for negating that I used to talk about was you put the words, it is not true that, into the front of the answer. Yeah. Because you're negating the entire answer. So the negation of Joe goes to the coffee shop every Wednesday morning would be it is not true that Joe goes to the coffee shop every Wednesday morning. Yeah. Anyway, it's not it's not something that we should be starting with. It's not what we teach here. What we teach at LSAT Demon is which one does the author have to agree with or which one has to be true according to the author? Yeah. Well, it goes back to your earlier discussion about half, how half of uh, logical reasoning is a must be true question. Necessary assumption questions are fundamentally just must be true questions. And in fact, some are even written that way. The question is phrased as which one of the following must be true. And the correct answer is a necessary assumption yeah. from the argument. Yeah, I could get students to like 95% of understanding on logical reasoning if I only had two types of questions. I mean, if, I, if, if it was just like there's must be true questions and there's change this change the situation types of questions. Which one of the following if true? Yep. Right. Which one of the following if true 
strengthens, mm-hmm. weakens, explains, whatever. Those are not the burden is not on us to prove the answer. It's which one, if true, is going to do a thing. Yeah, that's a whole different type of questions. Put those over there. And then all the remaining questions on the LSAT are essentially which one must be true. Yep. And necessary assumption falls into that category. Which one must be true according to the author? Yeah. Next one is coming uh, from the ask button again. It is about test J, which is one of the freely available tests. Uh, If you just have a demon free account, you can look at test J section three, question 17. The question says, I got this question correct, but can you break down answer choice B for me and how it makes the how it means the same thing as the prediction given in the explanation? Um, OK, so what we're going to take a look at this actual question, huh? Yeah, let's just do it. All right. Argument says when exercising the muscles in one's back, it is important in order to maintain a healthy back to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally ben do you exercise the muscles on opposite sides of your spine equally um i hope so i don't know (laughs) you try to yeah after all that after all does something that after all indicates that we have evidence coming it also indicates that the thing we said first was probably the conclusion of the argument right or it's a conclusion of the argument yeah yeah so after all So here's why I think that it is important to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. The reason why that's important is balanced muscle development is needed to maintain a healthy back since. So that's more evidence support. So it's actually the I think they put the last the the first thing last here. Yeah, I think we can rearrange the entire argument because what we're going to get here is a premise in support of another premise which is like an intermediate conclusion at the beginning of the second sentence which then should support the first sentence as the conclusion of the argument yep anyway it says since the muscles on opposite sides of the spine must pull equally in opposing directions to keep the back in proper alignment and protect the spine that's evidence for balanced muscle development is needed to maintain a healthy back okay which is evidence for When exercising the muscles in one's back, it's important in order to maintain a healthy back to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. Understand the argument? I think so. Yeah. Any objections to that argument? Well, there I actually have. I I have, I think, a, a few. So first of all, the premise that I have to accept is true is that the muscles on opposite sides of the spine must pull equally in opposing directions to keep the back in proper alignment and protect the spine. So I can't argue with that, right? So they've got to pull equally. My first question is, does that mean that they need to be uh, equally strong? Like if one is stronger than the other, could they still pull equally because the stronger one just doesn't pull as hard? Yeah, or the de- the muscle does not need to be as developed, right? Strength yeah. was actually not mentioned here. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was talking about muscle development, but that is sure. what Ben means, that Ben is objecting to basically the logic in the last sentence there. The last sentence was, again, balanced muscle development is needed to maintain a healthy back since the muscles on opposite sides of the spine must pull equally in opposing directions to keep the back in proper alignment and protect the spine. Ben, you said, but wait a second, isn't it possible that I could have balanced muscle development 
or sorry, without balanced muscle development, can't the, the muscles still pull equally in opposing directions? Yeah, it's just like one side is super strong or developed, I don't, however you want to think about that, but it just doesn't pull as hard. It doesn't exercise that strength. Uh, and therefore, my spine is pulled equally in both directions and it has proper alignment and it's totally fine. So does this necessarily, does this idea of balanced muscle development necessarily follow from this need to pull equally? I don't think so. So there's one place where you could object because they were doing reasoning twice here. Yep. I guess I could further object. Yep. Uh, keep going. Yeah. Because their next bit of of logic is, well, so that's why we have to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. Yeah. But my objection there would be, wait a second. What if I can get balanced muscle development, even if I don't exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't muscle science is complicated, right? I don't know why. I mean, it kind of makes sense on the surface. I don't have like any strong objections to this argument, but the standard on the LSAT is if you're going to conclude something from some evidence, that conclusion has to be 100% proven. And right now I could see some reasons why maybe you don't necessarily have to exercise them equally, but still end up with equal development. Yeah. Again, two places where we can object here. There's two places where they were doing logic. They were trying to do logic. And I'm not saying their logic is wrong. In fact, in real life, their logic is probably right. But maybe it's possible that the muscles can pull equally, even if they are not equally developed. And maybe it's possible that the muscles can be equally developed, even if we don't exercise them equally. Mm -hmm. Those were both things that they assumed to be true. They did not say that they were true. It turns out to be a necessary assumption question. The author does have to agree with both of those things. The author has yeah. to agree that if you don't exercise them equally, you won't have balanced muscle development. The author has to agree that if you don't have balanced muscle development, then the muscles will not pull equally. Yeah. Okay. Back to the question this student was asking can you break down answer choice B for me and how it means the same thing as the prediction given in the explanation? Well, we didn't read the explanation, but we made two <laughs> predictions. Yeah, yeah. Did we predict did we predict B? Let's take a look. B says exercising the muscles on opposite sides of the spine unequally tends to lead to unbalanced muscle development. Yeah, Bingo. the author, yeah, the author is going to have to agree with that because if you don't agree with that, <laughs> going into the negation technique, or sorry, if if that isn't true, if you could exercise them unequally but then still have balanced muscle development, then this whole thing falls apart. You don't need to exercise them equally. End of story. The question continues the way I see it is answer choice B is the contrapositive of the prediction, but it is backward in the sense that the word to is an if clause conditional indicator. Oh, boy. Wow. Um, we didn't even think about if then statements, let alone contrapositives. It's just like, hey, how did this author get to this conclusion? Well, they must have been assuming this. Here's the answer. <laughs> People ask us, like, wh why? Why are we different? How is it that we give people these extraordinary gains like how is it that we're getting 15 and 20 and 25 point improvements out of people 
Well, I'll tell you one real big difference between us and as far as I've seen all other LSAT prep is that it seems like all other LSAT prep starts with a bunch of really heavy handed conditional reasoning bullshit on day one. I mean, I know that's what I had to do. (laughs) That's what I had to do. I was a power score teacher and it was like right in the lessons. And we just started with a whole bunch of real heavy handed stuff. And even when I struck out on my own, I thought that that's what we had to do. You know, I'm like using my whiteboard and putting a bunch of if then statements and contrapositives and teaching people about the sufficient condition and the necessary condition and lists of conditionality indicators and all that shit. But it's also just common sense. I mean, the statement, if you're in Manhattan, then you're in New York means the exact same thing as if you're not in New York, then I know you're not in Manhattan. Mm hmm. And I, I could say it in a thousand different ways. And yes, it is, I guess, technically the contrapositive. But if you had never heard the word contrapositive, you still know that commonsensically the rule. If you're in New York, sorry, if you're in Manhattan, you have to be in New York means the exact same thing as if you're not in New York, then you can't be in Manhattan. We do that kind of reasoning just naturally all the time. It's everywhere around us. Yeah. We do also make a lot of mistakes when we do those kinds of re- that kind of reasoning. And so I think people are trying to counter that through this heavy handed uh, deconstruction of if then statements. <laughs> but instead, they but should there, just there's teach the easier flaw. ways. Yeah. Right. Easier ways like, hey, have someone make the mistake and then say, hey, do you see how right. that that's a mistake? Can you feel that? Can you intuitively understand why I that's will wrong? do right now? And, yeah. you, you know, you could take a third grader. I mean, in the city, you could take a third grader and say, hey, if you're in Manhattan, you have to be in New York, right? And the kid would go, yeah, no shit. And you would go, oh, so if you're not in Manhattan, then you can't be in New York. And the smart ass little New Yorker kid would, you know, roll their eyes at you and say, there's lots of other places in New York besides Manhattan. Yeah. That's the flaw. That's the flaw of confusing sufficient for necessary. And if you just understand that, then you basically do understand everything there is to understand about conditional reasoning. Yes. The challenge with that example, though, is that it's something that people can solve without necessarily logical understanding. They can solve by experience. Right. So that's that's where I think it helps to throw in examples I mean, I think it's a good example to get someone's mind wrapped around the rule, but then you want to go further and say, okay, what about this claim, right? Um, If we don't hire a new CEO, if we don't hire a new CEO, then we're going to, we're not going to deliver the product, right? So it's a little negatives in that. If we don't hire the CEO, (laughs) then we're not going to deliver the product. Okay. Yeah. Although there are two negatives, it's I think it's it's a claim that people can easily understand, right? You're listening to this podcast right now. You're like, okay, if that company doesn't get a new CEO, they're not going to deliver the product. And then Joe comes along and is like, hey, guess what, guys? Best news ever. We just found a new CEO. So therefore, guaranteed, we're going to deliver the product. Yeah. If you're thinking that, if you're like, oh, okay, we're great, we're good now. Well, then you're making that mistake, right? You're confusing mm-hmm. sufficient for it's necessary. It's the same fuck up. And the, the objection is the same. You know, yeah. the smart ass respondent, probably not a mm-hmm. third grader, but the respond, the smart ass, you know, or the actually very sensible person in the office goes, that's great that we have a new CEO. If we wouldn't have gotten a new CEO, we would be fucked. Yeah. But we can still be fucked even though we did get a new CEO. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. You know, there's lots of ways that we can fail to deliver this product. Sure, if we wouldn't have gotten the new exec, then we would have failed to deliver the product. For we sure. We can fail yeah. even with the new exec. Exactly. It's Maybe, still just common sense. Yes. And and it's give so you start with these examples that people understand 100% in part because of experience and they've they've even thought about this before, right? But then you start giving them these other examples that they're likely to to kind of maybe slip into this mistaken reasoning and then you correct that. And if they can start to understand that intuitively, then you just naturally catch these things and catch them fast. If you have to rely on diagramming, you're always going to be susceptible to yeah. mistakes that come in that process. Right. And so that's forth. the, that's the problem is that people learned it in such a heavy handed way that yep. they then, you know, cause whoever this is that wrote in is going straight for these conditional indicators, looking for specific words. You know, the word to is an if clause conditional indicator. What, what are you talking about? No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, two is a, maybe it can be used in. Well, a, he, he's right. If you two in a, what is it called? Um, when you have two and then a verb, what is, do you know what that phrase or what that's called exactly? But in the infinitive. I, yes. To and then a verb so is like a, to be a sufficient the indicator. Infinitive. Oh, I see. So you have to be a licensed driver to drive legally. Yes. So if so, you drive legally, yep. So you have, but there, <laughs> I used to be to indicate the necessary condition, not the sufficient condition. But you also said to drive, right? So to drive. Oh, um, to drive legally. Okay, yeah. but the problem, though, is that I did use the word to twice in the same sentence. I, 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 I'm going to push back. No, the word to by itself is not an if clause conditional indicator. That is incorrect because I just said it twice in a single if then clause. I'm actually not sure that your example disproves it because uh, can you say the sentence again? You have to have. I said the word to. Yeah. You have to have a valid driver's license in order to drive legally. I said the word to twice. It can't be as simple as just looking at the word to and deciding that that's a, oh, the word to indicates the if clause. No, it doesn't. I used it twice in the same sentence. And the second time it indicated the if clause, not the first. Yeah, well, I think I, I think <laughs> this is why we don't teach it. I think you can right. get caught up into the weeds, but I do think. I, I would have to like think about that for a second, which is also why we don't talk about it. So well, it goes to Billy is going to the store is to indicating an if clause. Well, in that case, it's a preposition. So, no, but you, that's my point. He says the word to is an if clause conditional indicator. And I'm just going to say, no, really, it's not. Yeah. Stop thinking that way. Yeah. Is there conditional reasoning in this statement or not? And I don't think it's a good idea to be like memorizing lists of conditional indicators. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. And in fact, the, the struggle I'm having with countering your example is precisely the problem. Right. But I'm also just trying to point out that there <laughs> there is this pattern and I think he's misunderstanding it. And I can't even like deconstruct what you're saying right now to say whether, oh, no, no, this is why that wouldn't apply or would apply. But that's precisely the rabbit hole we don't want to go down. Right. And I, it, it's a different thought process. It's literally, I think, the point of that book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, 
thinking slow is this analytical deconstruction, which is using a different part of the brain. You're disconnecting from reality in a lot of ways. It's like doing math, right? You're, you're now looking at variables as opposed to understanding why, oh, okay, well, this is likely what's going to happen. And we want you to do the test in a way that's based on intuition and intuition that's been corrected, an intuition that's maybe making mistakes occasionally, but we're coming in and saying, wait a sec, did you, did you realize what you just thought there? And you're like, oh, oh, okay. Now I get it, why that's wrong. And then you're gonna be much faster and better at catching that reasoning in the future. This is why we have to push back on people who diagram, even though they're with the demon. We're like, wait a sec, let go of that because when you let go, you're going to feel a little bit scared. It's like a safety net. But until you fully let go of it, you can't fully engage the intuitive side of your brain and develop it. And it's not until you fully let go. Like if you have like a half diagram still in your head, you're still relying on that. And it's a different way of thinking. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> We've talked about this a lot, but. I, I just, I want to encourage this correspondent to do the test in a more intuitive way. Stop trying to memorize lists of things. Stop being so focused on looking for conditionality. I see students all the time that start talking about conditional reasoning in a question where it's like they didn't even give you any conditional reasoning. It's like monsters under the bed. You mm -hmm. know, understand what they're saying. Argue with the speaker on this question about muscle development in your back, there were two different ways that you could commonsensically object to this argument. If you find those objections, then hopefully you go in and find the answer choice where it's like, well, yeah, this author has to agree with that. And as we discussed earlier, another way of getting to that is if this were false, this argument's not going to make, make sense anymore. But that's not what we would start with, right? We would start with, yep, that one right there. This author better believe that that's true. Yeah. And uh, it's just easier than I think people make it out to make it out to be when they do this like super heavy handed way of attacking logical reasoning. Yep. All right. Next one is from Anonymous. You want to read it? Yeah. What's up, Nathan? First and foremost, thanks for all you do. I was listening to a recent podcast episode where you spoke about the quantitative benefits of not finishing sections. Considering how the LSAT awards points for accuracy, I've made this my priority rather than time sections. Sorry, I've made this my main priority rather than timed sections. <laughs> you can skip main, right? Because priority does mean one. Um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I I'm trying to understand how you make accuracy a priority rather than time sections. Because <laughs> right, you can be make doing... drilling your priority instead of time sections. But when accuracy should be your priority when you're doing In timed sections. Time yeah. Section. yeah, yeah, I'm a little confused okay. by that. But anyways, I was hoping you could elaborate on the benefits of not finishing sections and provide me with suggestions for how often I should be incorporating timed sections. Currently doing one or two every other week with minus six, minus five when doing so. That's for logical reasoning and reading comp. Again, thanks for all you do. I'm currently an LSAT Demon subscriber and can't thank you enough. So we're going to link in the show notes to a blog post called Work Less for More Pay, where I go through a whole bunch of examples. And it's better for you to just go read that blog post than for me to try to rehash the entire blog post uh, out loud. But the idea is pretty simple. You, you, by doing fewer questions with higher accuracy, you're you're just going to score higher. Um, 
finishing the section with 50% accuracy leads you to 12 and a half questions on average, correct? Mm -hmm. But if instead you had done half the questions with 100% accuracy, well, you're going to get the same 12 and a half correct, but then you're also going to randomly guess on the remainder of the questions in the section, and that's going to give you a couple more points. And so if you do half the questions with 100% accuracy, you end up with like 14 or 15 points. Whereas if you had done 100% of the questions with 50% accuracy, you only end up with 12 or 13 points. So immediately it should always be higher to just focus on accuracy instead of speed. But the next thing is you then start to understand that the questions can be solved and that the questions are actually easy, that the right answer is just right there in front of you. The wrong answers are wrong and it speeds your development. So you'll do better today and you'll do better tomorrow if you just focus on accuracy instead of speed. Yeah. You know, I almost feel like we we already talked about the benefits of today versus tomorrow earlier in the podcast, and we're talking about it again now. I almost feel like the discussion of the benefits today are a distraction. Yeah, right. Like people can get tied up and they're like, oh, well, what if I what? But what if I got like 17 right? And then and then I guessed on the rest. I mean, maybe I right. would end up getting... Don't even think about that. It's just not the long-term big payoff solution. The big money comes from the fact that you're learning how to do the test correctly and therefore can get to a point where you do 20, 22 questions, 100% accuracy. I can go back to my original example and I can just talk about it in a completely different way. The student who does half the questions with 100% accuracy, I'm excited about that student. I see the student who does half the questions with 100% accuracy and I go, oh, So you've realized that the questions are totally solvable, right? You've realized that you can get them right and feel confident about your answers if you just take the time with it and get them right, right? I love that student because that student is unlocking the test. That student is carefully reading everything on the page and understanding what they're reading and they're going to pick answers and feel good about those answers. They're actually understanding the LSAT. They're learning about the LSAT. The more they do that, the more they're, you know, they're practicing getting them right. The other student probably thinks that they're better. The other student does all the questions with 50% accuracy. And they're like patting themselves on the back. Like, well, I don't have any problems with speed. So that's great. And, and I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? You're doing half the question. You're, you're, you're not actually like the, all those questions that you missed, you didn't really do them. I mean, you either did or did not get the correct answer. All we care about is how many you get correct. And the student who gets half of them right, you know, even though they got the same number of them right, that student who's getting half of them right, uh, you know, finishing the section is that's like you're just kind of randomly guessing you're half assing it. Yeah. And that student, I'm much less excited about that student. Yeah. And and I'm pretty sure that all of your excitement stems from what's going to happen with that student in the future who's doing 100% accuracy on the ones they attempt and has nothing to do with their score today. Do you right. care about their score today? No, I don't, all? but the first student is scoring higher because they get some free points from their random guesses, you know. Sure. But and if they told you that, it's like, yeah, so what? But they they are <laughs> right. No, right? I'm not like, excited about their score. Like, I don't even care. Yeah, I'm not excited about their score today. That is true. But 
I am excited about the fact that they have gotten used to the idea that they don't need to finish the sections. They've gotten used to the idea that random guesses at the end of every section results in free points. It takes you no time and you get free points. Mm -hmm. And my extreme example. Yeah. You know, of 50 percent or whatever. Eventually, that same student is going to start doing 16, 17, 18 questions with high accuracy and then guessing on the remainder of the section. And then that student already is going to be knocking on the door of 160. Yeah. But it's real hard for the other student, the one who's used to half assing it, skimming the surface, finishing the section every time. Frequently, people finish the section with like extra time to spare. And then they go back and try to double check their answers and their accuracy is still horrible. Mm. Those people just I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not excited about their future potential. That's absolutely true because they're they're still not used to the idea that, hey, I can comfortably guess on a few questions at the end of the section. As long as I get everything right at the beginning of the section. Yeah. It's like they learn to get their teeth into it and act and just like force themselves to find the correct answer. And that's one of the most important things that we can learn as we're studying for the LSAT, that these questions are solvable. You just have to devote yourself to actually solving them instead of narrowing it down to a 50 50. Agreed. All right. This next one's from L. The subject is thoughts on this. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Universal. So you could just put that same subject in every email you send. Yeah. <laughs> Sup gentlemen. It says exclamation point. I started a job at X university. And part of the reason I took the job other than the good pay was because they said I could go to law school and have tuition waived as an employee. It's not an easy process, but I have the rundown. If the law school accepts me, I would have a part-time schedule of roughly nine to 10 credits per semester. I would submit a tuition waiver form and an exemption form for the IRS. The second form is so that the waived tuition is not considered taxable income. That raised an eyebrow for sure. I would still be considered for scholarships depending on my application. The school does not have a part-time program on their 509, but my student slash staff status would allow me to do it. It would be interesting to see if they report that on the next 509. Also, they told me that they will be rolling out a fully online option and it will announce later in late 23 or 24. And if this school is doing it, many others might. Is it a scam? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, I guess my initial reaction is, okay, great. Can you actually get a, when it says tuition waiver, does that mean that they're waiving 100% of tuition or just some of it? So that's a big question in my mind. I don't think the fact that they're asking you for, um, or asking you to fill out a second form to get the IRS to not consider this taxable income is at all alarming. I, that I think makes me believe looking, that it's legit. I mean, you'd have yeah, to they're talk looking to, out for you. They're saying, Hey, right. we don't want you to get taxed on this. And then you end up paying some money. You'd have to talk to your own tax advisor. We are obviously not giving legal and tax advice on the show, but yes. you know, if they're giving a form and if it looks legit and the school is like, no, this is a benefit that you get, uh, from being part of the community here. And for whatever reason, we don't have to tax you on the value of that. If there's a form for it, then it, yeah, I mean, that sounds like the IRS routinely grants this type of thing, but I don't, I have no idea. I've never seen this form before. I have not looked at the 
tax codes. So you'd have to examine that to find out whether this is actually taxable or not. I mean, you know, they don't tax people on like you're eating unlimited pizza at the pizza place or you're bowling for free when you work at the bowling bowling alley. I don't they don't typically tax employees on those benefits. So they're but here, you know, because it's a big chunk of money that the, you know, nominal tuition that they charge would be a shit ton of money. Yeah, they're just trying to keep you from having to owe a whole bunch of money in taxes, which sounds sounds good from here. Yeah, it sounds so. But my biggest concern is, OK, are you getting a full tuition waiver? If you aren't, then, of course, the next question would be, OK, well, could you go for free somewhere else? So even though this is a nice benefit, maybe you could get a better benefit somewhere else. Is this school even worth going to? I don't know. Um, yeah. As far as the fully online option is concerned, that doesn't sound like a scam to me. But, you know, you would want to, like, talk to your state bar. Um, are they going to honor this fully online JD, if that's what you're going to do? Because I guess some jurisdictions might not allow fully online JDs to sit for the bar in their state. You'd have to talk to the bar in your state to know the answer to that question. It does sound like these are more common. And I actually did have um, a question for our listeners. And that is, what does it take to become an accredited law school? Because... <laughs> I was thinking about this John Roberts School of Law idea that we had two years ago. A hundred episodes ago, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, hey, this is something that could disrupt legal education, right? Right. These schools are coming on fully online, but the ones we've looked at so far, they're still charging the same crazy rates. They're not cheaper, even though they're online. And so to me, that's not a disruption. It's it's a mild benefit. Oh, now you don't have to go in person so you can open up your marketplace to a lot wider group. That really just helps the schools. That doesn't super help the kids. So then it's like, hey, can we really change legal education? And then I thought to myself, well, it just has to come down to what are the rules written on paper that allow for a school to be accredited? So if some listener is willing to figure that out, please let me know. Ben at LSATdemon.com. I want to know what are the fucking hoops you have to jump through to become one of these overpriced institutions. Is that by the ABA or is that going to vary state by state? I don't know. I would okay. imagine it's by the ABA because I think they're the ones who approve or the well, Department of Education has given them the authority to approve. The value to going to an ABA accredited school, as I understand it, is that you're allowed to sit the bar in any jurisdiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. There are yeah. like there are in California, there are California bar accredited schools that are not ABA accredited schools. And my understanding there is that it's almost identical. You do have to take the baby bar if you're not um, if you're not in an ABA school, then you have to take what they call the they don't. It's. Colloquially, <laughs> it's referred to as the baby yeah, bar, but it's yeah, this exam true. you have to take between your first and second year so that they can. It's basically a consumer protection action to to keep you or mechanism to keep you from uh, getting ripped off for your second and third year. If you're not going to be able to pass the mm. bar exam at the end of your third year, at least sure. that's how it works in California with the baby bar. OK, the only other difference, uh, as I understand it, if you go to a Cal bar accredited school is that. You just can't sit for the bar in New York. And if you had gone to an ABA accredited school, then you could sit for the bar in any state. But 
it would be interesting to hear what it what would be required to get accreditation either at the local level or at the ABA level. Fully online education, I I can't see how it's not the I mean, I'm not saying that in-person education will fully go away. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I see no reason whatsoever why a fully online option cannot adequately educate, <coughs> excuse me, cannot adequately educate someone to be a practicing attorney. Yeah. Well, Nathan, what do you think about this idea? What if we made it a subscription model? You find out you don't like law school too. You just, you're out. Yeah. Whether it's a subscription model or some other model of how you charge people, I don't know. But I, I mean, I do like the idea of making it you know, I think astronomically <laughs> we were, cheaper, right? If we were going to do it, it yeah. we would make it cheaper. We would make it better. We would make it faster. Faster. Yep. And so, yeah, it would be disruptive because it would be like, no, no, you're going to do this in a year or you're going to go part time and you're going to do it in two years or something yep. like that. Yep, exactly. And sure, you know, not roping somebody into a full semester of tuition instead, just say, well, get started with it this month. And if you don't like it, drop out um, or pause it and come back to it later somehow. I mean, that would be or, great. Or you benefit from going like these Coursera courses right there. It's a subscription. And if you finish them faster, well, then the program's actually cheaper for you. And who cares? The point is, do you meet the qualifications? And so that's where I'm like, okay, what does the ABA want to get a school accredited? What is the, the hoops that everyone has to jump through to make them happy? And that's probably the limiting factor. Because yeah. when it comes to actually learning this content and getting ready for the bar, it can't be a three-year process. It doesn't have to be a three-year process by any means. Anyway, no, I mean, <laughs> like everyone in law school agrees that the third year of law school is completely a joke. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just totally a waste of time of everybody's time. What they always say is in the first year, they scare you to death. In the second year, they work you to death. And in the third year, they bore you to death. And uh, I, I think that's pretty apt. Also, mm -hmm. in none of the years do they teach you the actual skills that are going to be required for you to practice law. Yeah. Which is why there's that entire industry that I used to work in, which <laughs> is professional development for new attorneys. Nor yeah. do they teach you how to pass the bar exam because there's an entirely <laughs> other in industry that's related to getting you to prep to, to pass the bar. I got a text yesterday from a former student who's about to graduate. Who's like, please, please start offering bar prep because I'm going to yeah. have to take a bar prep class after finishing three damn years of law school. And now I'm going to have to Expensive do a bar prep years. class. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> like, I'm so sorry that legal education is as shitty as it is. Anyway, going fully online sounds excellent to me. I think that it would be wildly more efficient than everybody dragging heavy ass textbooks to go sit in a lecture hall and everybody commuting to the campus to get together for one damn lecture where it's not even really participatory anyway. It's just the professor going off with their arcana. And this is the thing. It's not a unique <laughs> lecture, right? Like right. record the best version of this lecture, make that a recording, and then have chat sessions about that right. in a quarter, an eighth yeah, of the time. Yeah, that is hilarious. It's like property, right? 
and the rule against perpetuities, which is just like constantly it's the bane of everyone's existence (laughs) to get people to understand the fucking rule against perpetuities. And it's like and then you've got every different property professor across the country all trying to teach the rule against perpetuities, their own convoluted way that doesn't help people. It's like, yeah, get one, (laughs) get it on tape once of someone actually teaching it in a way that people can understand it. Yep. Yeah. And then have like, you could have an acute, you could have like these help sessions where people come together and they're like, wait, I'm confused by this. And it's, you explain it. And now in an eighth of the time, it's just, wow. Okay. Anyways, I think we think we could do it better. (laughs) L's question is funny because it's like, is it a scam? You know, that this school is doing a fully online option. A better question is, is law school a scam? You know, like, what is the actual purpose of this? Because it's, boy, it's a lot of money that is going where again? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going into professors' salaries and it's going into skyscrapers in downtown everywhere. (laughs) And it's going to, I don't know, a lot of stuff that doesn't. Like, how does this actually translate to you being a better lawyer? You know, like, because if they're not teaching you how to practice and they're not teaching you how to pass the bar, then what are they actually doing? Yeah. Oh, they're making money. That's what they're doing. They've set up a system where they said, you need to do this to practice law and we will provide it to you for a very expensive price. And the only reason you have the funds to even consider or entertain this ridiculously outpriced in or overpriced game is because the federal government has agreed to give people loans yeah ready to move on (laughs) yeah uh the next one is response from school requesting grade change i was looking at my undergrad grades and noticed that my school does not remove f's from my retaking classes okay that's not surprising a lot of schools don't do that they just average your f with your retake I emailed the registrar to ask if this was normal and they confirmed that it was, but also mentioned that adjustments are made to the GPA to prevent any negative impact. (laughs) Any negative impact on your GPA, on your transcript. Unfortunately, you can read the next sentence. Yeah. However, once LSAC receives the transcripts, they do not make any such adjustments. Yeah. Your school might just not count the F. They only count the retake grade on your transcript GPA. LSAC, on the other hand, counts both. Yeah. Uh, Producer Eric writes, true, LSAC states, and this is from LSAC's website. uh, I guess they have a transcript summarization page. All grades and credits earned for repeated courses will be included in the GPA calculation if the course units and grades appear on the transcript. A line drawn through course information or a grade does not eliminate the course from GPA calculation if the course units appear on the transcript. So if it shows up, it's going to be included. Yeah. So the thing to ask for, if you're going to go ask your undergrad institution, if they are willing to do you a solid, they need to remove it entirely from the transcript. That F needs to be gone. Yeah. If the F is gone, then it's not going to count because how could they count it? But if it's yeah. there, and even if it's crossed out, LSAC is going to count it. Anonymous uh, continues. Although I had never thought about requesting a grade change until I heard about it on the podcast, 
I did make a request to my school. Unfortunately, it does not seem like my school is willing to accommodate me. Below is their response. I think they made it sound like I'm requesting something criminal, LOL. Okay, let's see what the school says. External institutions are allowed to have different standards and calculations than we do. Our advisor experience is that law and medical schools and certification processes often do extensive background checks. And while it may seem penalizing, being honest about your academic performance reflects better on your records than having those entities later find out that records were modified to bypass their calculations. Fuck off. Oh my gosh. That's not what this person is asking for. <laughs> Fuck They're off. They're asking They're for like... an official change. <laughs> right. And this is such <laughs> bullshit. Like as if the law school is going to go in and interrogate, like they're going to, this uh, advisor is going to be in a deposition and it's going to be like, did you take grades off of the transcript of Mr. Jones? They're never going to do that. If it's not on the fucking transcript, then LSAC's not going to count it. And nobody's going to go in and do a background check. They didn't need to throw in. This. And even if they did, they would be like, well, if the school officially removed them, we have no objection. It's not like these things get yeah. officially removed and LSAC comes and demands that they be restored. <laughs> Being honest about your academic performance reflects better on your records. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if you could get that F taken off of your transcript, that would reflect much better on your records. Well, this and saying the word honest is ridiculous because it is being honestly removed if the school is removing them. It's not like he's doctoring his records. No, That's the school, dishonest. <laughs> right. The school could easily say, well, it didn't count in our calculation of the student's GPA. They retook the class. They got an A or whatever. That's what counts in their GPA. If we're not going to count it in their GPA, then why the fuck would we even put it on their transcript? So we just remove yeah. it from their transcript. But by the way, once it's removed from the transcript, no one is ever going to ask that question. The what the office of the registrar really meant here was we don't that we don't do that. That's not our policy. We're not going to do it. I would re, I would encourage this person to try to go over the head of whoever this was. Yep. And ask for have you ever made an exception to this rule? Yeah, ask if you can come sit and talk to them, you know, share your concerns with them the odds are that it's going to end up in a no, but we get emails from people where they eventually ended up getting the yes. And if you get that S and can actually, yeah, that yes, and can actually change your, your UGPA calculation. I mean, it's a huge win if, if you get it. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about odds of guessing answer choices on this show today. Think about it this way. If you don't ask, the answer yeah. is no. If you do ask, the odds might be low, maybe 10% chance that they say yes, but that's 10% more than zero. Yeah, go ask. This person's not going to do it for you, but you might be able to go to their supervisor. There is some chance that they're, you know, if you explain to them, hey, look, this is how LSAC does their calculations and you're calculating GPA in a different way and it's hurting your undergrads. Is and there you're any acknowledging. Way that yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you. Yeah, you're acknowledging that these grades don't matter to you. That's why you're deliberately adjusting right. the GPA. So if they really don't matter to you, can you please not make them matter after I leave? Right. Because they do matter. I mean, yeah, like <laughs> they are trying to tell you that adjustments are made to the GPA to prevent any negative impact. But you can come right back and say, but there is a negative impact. Yeah. Of leaving this F on the transcript. 
Yep. Because I have retaken the class and because you're not counting it in my GPA calculation, I'm requesting that you will take it off of the transcript entirely so that I will avoid this negative impact to my LSAC GPA. My GPA on your transcript doesn't matter. My GPA on LSAC's calculations is what matters because I'm trying to go to law school here. Yeah. Now, whether they're going to do it for you or not, I mean, 90% no. Yeah. But 10% chance of a real big win. And, you know, why not ask? Yep. Next one is from Anonymous. It's about prolonging your degree. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I'm a black applicant with a 3.65. I took the January LSAT and got a 169, which I was dissatisfied with. So I'm currently scoring in the high 170s, aiming to get a 175 plus. Uh, Since I'm a splitter, aiming for Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and using August and September as backup tests. Other than the long run on sentence, everything sounds great here. I mean, this is (laughs) (laughs) like, I'm glad you're doing all this stuff. And yeah, if, if you are PTing in the one seventies, then you definitely should not just settle for your one sixty nine. I'm so glad that you waited. Uh, you're waiting another cycle. You could have just applied in January or February with that one sixty nine, And that would have sucked. I mean, you would have gotten as a black applicant with a 3.65 and a 169, you probably would have gotten some attractive offers, but you can get much better offers by waiting another cycle. So, you know, congrats yeah. on that. Yeah. Yep. Good job. Okay. Email continues. I am a student that prolonged their undergrad undergraduate degree from four to seven years and still haven't graduated due to taking extra semesters of first and second year electives to raise my GPA, knowing that once you graduate, your GPA is cemented. I was planning on doing this while working until I get an acceptance to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford, or a good scholarship at a top 14 school. Is this a good idea to continue, or will it be counterproductive for admissions purposes, raising concerns for taking so long to graduate? Comma, the course level selection and part-time course load. Huh? Just... (laughs) kind of a fragment just hanging on there at the end of that sentence. Yeah. If I continue this until fall next for next cycle, I would be able to bring myself up to above slightly over a 3.7. What's your take for others generally and specifically URMs like myself? Thanks. I'm not as concerned about the time it's taking you to graduate. It is a long time. I'm wondering about uh, okay, I guess you have the money to do this because are we are we spending tons of money to save money? Like maybe right. it's not worth it. Um, I am also concerned about how much your GPA can actually go up because as we were just talking about, some of these older grades are still likely to be on your record. And then if they are, they're going to be calculated in the LSAC GPA. Well, let's are assume that there's mo- no retakes. I don't think that this is retakes. I think that this is just taking extra first and second year oh, electives. Like, extra semester. Well, oh, yeah. electives. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought just this going person in was and replacing. taking like, oh, yeah, let me take that introduction to psychology. Let me take that introduction sure, to sure. sociology. Let me take a bunch of te- classes that I think I can ace so that I can raise my GPA. I think that works as long as you don't graduate. I think that works. Yeah. But <laughs> listeners should definitely tell us if we're wrong about that. I mean, I don't want to be distributing bad information here, but my understanding is that if you keep taking classes, not retaking classes, just taking new classes and getting A's, yep. I think your GPA, your 
on UGPA is going to go up. The LSAT calculation is going to go up. So I'm willing to believe that this student can go from a 3.65 to a 3.71. The question is, what's it worth? And the answer is, it's probably not worth two more LSAT points. No, your LSAT's going to have a much bigger impact. I mean, we always say GPA first, but boy, eh, you've been doing this a long time. I don't, there's these, like, I don't know if the marginal benefit is worth it. Yeah. I, I tend to agree here. If you're applying, yeah, what are you, you're saying you're going to continue this until fall next for next cycle. I'm not, but you're also saying you're using August and September as a backup, which makes me think that you are applying this cycle. When I say this cycle, I mean this fall for next fall admission. If we're only talking about one more semester of classes and you're applying this fall anyway, then I don't really see any problem with it. If you were going to wait a whole extra year after that, I would be then concerned that you're like, just. How are you doing this? Is over engineering free? it. I don't, I mean, great. It might help you get into Harvard, Yale and Stanford, but how much money are you paying to do yeah, this? Maybe if you're going to a state school, in-state tuition, maybe you've got ways of funding it, but yeah, it does seem like a mistake if you're spending, like, certainly if you're going to some highfalutin university and you're paying, you know, $20,000 a semester to do this, Ugh. that, oh, <laughs> that yeah. seems, seems like you're losing money by trying to save money, as Ben said earlier. Um, and your time, like you said, what if you could get this up to a 175? I mean, that's going to push the needle way more at this point. They're scoring in the high 170s currently aiming to get a 175. I don't or 175 plus. I don't see any reason why this person can't do it. I mean, they're already yeah. doing it on their practice tests. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you should be taking the tests now if you didn't take April you should be taking June, you should be taking August, you should be taking September until you get your 175 plus. Once you get your 175 plus, then you're done. And, and you go a ahead 175 and from a URM, that's going to, they're going to be peop, lots of law schools clamoring for that. Yeah. So. Including, I'm pretty sure Harvard, Yale, Stanford. I, yep. you know, that just you're, you are underrepresented in the highest echelons of law schools and they know that and they are ashamed of it and they want to fix it. And so, yeah, I think you're going to be a great candidate with a 175. Yep. And I don't really think 3.65 or 3.7 is going to make very much of a difference. I mean, you're way, way below the median GPA at Harvard and Yale and Stanford anyway. So yep. they're, they're letting you in as a splitter regardless it, yeah. But it's the well, you're not going to get that. You're not getting above the median. Right. So what there is very marginal benefit to this yeah. plan. Yeah. And at Yale, you know, I mean, these schools do have real high medians. So you might need that 176 or 177 to even be at the median at a school like Yale. Um, but yeah, d write us back. I, I would love to hear how this goes for you. But I think you're I think you're doing everything right. Cool. Cool. This next email is from Jackson. The subject is LSAT study length. I hope you are doing well. I'm a student who's planning on applying for law school in the fall of 2020. I'm a new subscriber fall of to 2023. Your Sorry, 2020. <laughs> We're going back in time. Okay, <laughs> thanks, hard, Jackson. Yeah. I'm a new subscriber to your program and am thrilled to have found it. I have jumped from an initial score of 135 to a recent score of 156. My goal is to enroll in Yale Law. Oh, okay. 
My question is how much studying is too much? I am more than willing to take another year to study for the exam as I have the GPA. Um, I'd love to hear what your GPA is as I have the GPA and resume for a highly ranked law school. However, I am questioning if achieving my end goal of 175 is even plausible for me. Have you ever had a student score so low, take hundreds of hours to study for the exam and then eventually score incredibly high? So yeah, you're looking at a 40 point increase. That would be the highest increase I have ever heard. Yep. But we have heard in the last year, we had multiple people improve by 30 points or more. Yes. And, you know, like the type of people who are going to go to Yale Law, <laughs> if, if like, why do you want to go to Yale, by the way? I think yeah, the reason why you want to go to Yale is because you want to be like masters of the universe. Like you want to be top, top. You want to do extraordinary things with your life. You're going to have to get an extraordinary score. <laughs> well, yeah. And why not have an extraordinary improvement on your LSAT? Yeah. I mean, it's like people like Yale, people who go to Yale, it's like fucking astronauts and shit. It's it's like really legit. Yeah. So, you know, I don't care where you started. The only thing that's going to matter is how much you're able to achieve. You it sounds like you have already. I mean, you've made a 21 point improvement. I think I don't know how long you've been at it, but a 21 point improvement is fantastic. Now you just got to tack another 19 points onto that to get to your goal of 175. I mean, I don't see why you can't just because it would be the highest improvement of the biggest improvement we've ever heard of. Doesn't mean that it's impossible. Yeah, Jackson, don't think of yourself as someone who started as a 135. Think of yourself as someone who is currently a 156. That's all that matters. Yeah. And when people say I'm at 156, can I make it to 175? I say, I don't see why not. Yep. Go for it. I would love and, it if and you did. Please. Please tell us if you get anywhere close to that goal. Yeah. And do not apply this cycle. I mean, you're not applying this fall. You said you were planning on applplying for law school in the fall of 2023. No, no, you're not. Not if you're trying to get 175, you're not. Yeah. I mean, you I, I, or I would be shocked if you did, because, you know, you're at 156 to get to 175. The odds of that happening in time for the June LSAT is nil. Yeah. Since, yeah, I mean, 135 to 175, it's like, yeah, that probably will take a year or more, but it could totally be worth it. In fact, it could be the best investment of time you ever made, because if you do end up with this 175 and you do end up at Yale, that is a life changing thing. And whether you go to law school starting in 2023 or starting in 2024, that is not a life changing thing. Nope, does not matter at all. You know, and the other thing here is, let's say you never get to the 175. Let's say you get to 172, 171. I don't know, something like that. I don't know what your GPA is, but if it's as high as you claim it is, you're still going to have great offers from very good schools, and that could still be life-changing. I mean, going to a top six school for free. <laughs> yeah, if you wait another year and you improve your LSAT as much as you possibly can, and you apply in the fall of 2024, with the best LSAT, whatever that is for you, might be 175, might be 179, might be 171. I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Nobody does until you actually do the prep. But whatever it is, whatever you max out at, you're going to be getting into a much better range of schools at much better prices than you would if you tried to apply this fall with a 160 something. Yep. 
Jackson, we would love to hear back from you on your process. You can keep in touch with us at thinkinglsat.com. You can also find us on all of the social media. So if you want to talk to us there, you can. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 401 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.